Welcome to the Rock of Grace Cortland Campus Podcast, where we aim to lead people like you to follow Jesus together. We have a new podcast each week with a message that is prepared with you in mind. So here's this week's message. Would have been a part of that group of kids that just maybe licked it, but refused to make The inside. So I would have. Okay, awesome. Just making sure. So uh, that marshmallow test, though. I, how many of you guys have seen that video before? It's not a a, a brand new video. Uh, it's actually pretty old. But I felt like as this week, as we were concluding our series on the fruit of the spirit with self control, I immediately remembered this video and said, I have to find this video to share with everybody because I don't think. This video is anything shy of perfectly capturing what it's like to kind of control yourself in a moment of temptation, in a moment of weakness, or any of those things. So maybe uh, our temptation today isn't marshmallows. Maybe it is. You know, I don't know what your, your thing is. But being left with something that you can have now, but if you can control yourself, something better is to come. Just think about it. Think about sometimes the things in life that we kind of experience where it's like, if I could just be patient right now instead of rushing it, instead of trying to grow up quicker, try to do that one thing sooner or force that door open instead of being patient and working our way through. Because let's be honest, I think we all face that temptation at some point in our lives. You might actually be facing this right now because the truth is we live in a world that encourages and thrives off of instant gratification. Do you ever find yourself with your phone, you know, it's sitting somewhere, and you hear that ding, that little vibration, and you can't resist the urge to just go and and check it? You know, for me, I've had to do some of those things where I turn off all the bubble notifications, those little, uh, that red dot that appears, because I have to get rid of those red dots. No matter how important or not important it is, we have to learn to find ways that we can introduce control into a world where we are satisfied instantly. And see, the way that we are able to be self-controlled has a direct effect on many aspects of our lives, both our faith and everywhere else. So as I said earlier, if you've been with us throughout the rest of this month, we've been taking a deeper dive throughout the rest of the fruits of the Spirit. And today we find ourselves on the final fruit of the Spirit called self-control. See, just like in that video where the children had to really uh, practice it, they were tested with it, whether or not they had the ability to control themselves with knowing if I can control myself now, there is something better to come. We are called to exhibit the same self-control in our lives as followers of Christ, not just in the ways that society expects us to maintain ourselves with self-control, but in the way that Christ compels us to. And just like every other fruit that we've taken a look at, we're going to look at how this fruit is not just listed in Galatians 5, but lived out throughout Scripture as we learn what it means to produce a fruit that is reflective of God. So we find ourselves recognizing that self-control is an aspect of Christian character. 
We have to start there, just like we have started here with every other fruit that we have looked at. See, Galatians 5, to 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But then we look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. And then we move to 2 Peter, verse, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, Endurance, do I need to swap my microphone? Are we misbehaving today? Don't you love when technology works exactly as you had planned? You know, hey, this week, though, is my speaking mic and not the uh, keyboard, so it's a fantastic move. I'm going to go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. This stuff is powerful. And as we can see, self-control is present throughout all of Scripture. And it's something that I feel like in modern-day Christianity, in American Christianity, it is something that we have created excuse after excuse around. And I'm going to dive into that just a little bit more in just a few moments. But we have to be cautious, church, as believers, as followers of Christ, to recognize what Jesus says about how we must control ourselves. In fact, you guys may have realized that this is one of the most scripture-heavy series that we have done as a church. And it is very important to make sure that that is recognized because this is not what Pastor Dave says. It is not what Pastor Dave thinks or the rest of the teaching team we have throughout Rock of Grace and all of our locations says or thinks that these fruits and how we must enact them is directly out of Scripture. In fact, today is the most Scripture from this entire series. So if you're taking notes, get ready. There's plenty of Scripture that just continues to back up what it means to exemplify self-control in our life. And we start off with self-control being the mark of a wise person. Does anybody want to not be considered wise? Like, I feel like being foolish today. Sometimes you might look at somebody like, you chose foolishness today. But the truth is we need to actually make a choice every day to say, I'm going to practice self-control because I want to practice wisdom in my life. Proverbs 1, the very beginning, verses 1 through 5, says the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, 
knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen in increasing learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. See, I love all the Proverbs. See, granted, you know, it's written by the wisest person to have ever lived. So there's ever a place that we should be starting when we're looking for self-control and how it is tied to the wisdom that God has given us. Proverbs is an incredible place for us to start. But see, Solomon then goes on to exemplify that some of the things that we struggle to take control of within ourselves is actually something that God has given us the authority to control. See, sometimes we can act out of an emotion, saying, I don't have control over this. But the truth is, God did not permit emotions to have authority over you, but you have authority over yourself in all ways. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. And see, often the area where we fall short of this is in our anger. We tend to make bad choices in our anger. We tend to say something that we have to go back and apologize for. Sometimes there's repercussions for. But the truth is that God is showing us here that a wise person holds their anger and everything with it in check. Because you are not a servant to your emotions. God has given you authority over what you say, over what you do, and what you think. Because then later on we see that self-control affects the whole person. It affects you and I in entirely. No other way that any of the fruit does not. Self-control affects the whole person. And it starts with physical self-control. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 through 27 says, So I do not run like the one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, Paul is being pretty clear about first making sure that he is not disqualifying himself by how he is acting and how he controls himself. And I hold myself to that same level of accountability as a pastor, and there's that accountability with the organizations that we associate with in being part of the Assemblies of God. But there's more to that because he's setting the example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, I'm not just called as a pastor, but we are called as Christians to practice self-control so that we do not set ourselves apart as hypocrites, disqualifying ourselves from the same thing that we are saying because of how we live our lives. We cannot live our lives by the mantra, do as I say, not as I do. Have you ever been told that? Don't have to raise your hands. Also, don't raise your hands for this one. But have you ever said it? Like, do as I say, not as I do. It's like, yeah, don't worry. I'm, I'm permitting this. I'm doing something you really shouldn't. So kids, don't look. Mom, don't look. Dad, don't look. Just, just do as I say, not as I do. And the temptation there is very real because we see the shortcut to kind of getting what we want, even though we know what I'm about to do is not right or is not correct or is not the way that Jesus is leading us to. So we should never live by the way of saying, do as I say, not as I do. 
But we should start as Christians to be the best example of what it means to those who don't believe by saying, do as I do, as I seek to be more and more like Christ. Not, it's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I'm arrogant or confident in saying, yeah, I'm doing the right thing, so do exactly what I'm doing. But if your heart is in the right place of saying, I'm seeking to follow and honor God in all of my actions, then I think we should have the confidence as Christians to say, come do as I do, because I'm seeking to follow God in everything I do. And as I said, honestly, I think we have a major problem in this area, specifically in the church today. Not just Rocky Grace, but I think just the big C church throughout all of this nation, where we fail to really understand what this means. Because we've created excuses. We've created permission. We've created tolerance for things that Scripture commands self-control in. See, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7 says, for this is God's will. That's the key part of this one. It's not for Pastor Dave's will, but it's for God's will. For this is God's will, your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against, again, and take advantage of a brother or a sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all of these offenses. And we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. See, society today has created a structure that the church should be rejecting wholeheartedly when it comes to sexuality. But instead, we look at what the world says is okay, and we find a way to justify sexual immorality, not just within myself, not just within this church, but perhaps our own lives and our family members' lives and our friends' lives. See, here's the truth, is it is easy to justify the things that Scripture claims as sexual immorality today. It is very easy to find ourselves crossing that line because I can find a way to justify it. And you might not be a person dealing with this, but I guarantee you, you know a Christian, not just somebody, but a Christian who is struggling with this. And we're going to address what this looks like, not just to bring this up with somebody else, but all these areas. See, here's the thing. In the seasons of dating and engagement, and yes, right now those are the same, in the seasons of dating and engagement, there are excuses to permit promiscuity. God brought us together. You're my soulmate. There's nobody else that we can be with. It's okay. We're going to get married. The Bible didn't really mean it that way. Other people do it, and they get along in life just fine. In a season of singleness, you can say, it's okay. Nobody's getting hurt in marriage, I just don't feel that spark anymore. He or she just doesn't get it. In identity and orientation, we say, be you. Love is love. Or God made me this way. And the list honestly could keep going on and on and on when it comes to sexual immorality. See, whether our physical self-control is sexual immorality or the multitude of other areas when we lack physical self-control, we give ourselves over to permitting sin in our lives. 
And if then we give ourselves to sin, repeating over and over and over again, saying, well, God will forgive me, then we are falling into deeper sin because Scripture says that we should not test the Lord our God. And when we permit ourselves to step into sins, the sins that are unseen, the sins that are private, the sins that we think we're getting away with, that we know if somebody else knew would disqualify me from being able to say what I say, that would disqualify me for being an example We have to stop hiding this, church. We have to stop permitting this in our lives, church. And if you're struggling with these things, and not just sexual identity or sexual immorality, but in anything else, I'm urging you to step forward and find somebody in your life that you can speak to and say, help me practice self-control in this area because I want to honor God. It is not a shameful thing, but it is an honorable thing. It is something to be commended. Because we, church, must desire more of God in our lives. And when we do that, we practice more and more self-control, saying, God, I don't want to test you anymore. I'm not going to repeat and fall into the habitual sin that is defined throughout Hebrews. Saying, well, God, you're going to forgive me anyways. That's not how this works. See, our self-control is not just for what we do, but it's a practice that we must implement in our mind. So we're moving from physical to mental. See, our mental self-control is equally important. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 reads this. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, nobody makes good decisions when they are not of a sound mind, when they are not of a sober mind. When we permit drunkenness into our lives, we are giving way to losing self-control. See, here's the thing. Drunkenness doesn't make you say something you didn't mean. It amplifies the truth. It amplifies what's already there. It removes that filter, that thing that is an action of self-control. When we permit drunkenness or other ways that we lose our clarity of mind, we open ourselves up to losing the inhibition, losing the self-control that God has given us. And we find ourselves in a place of remorse we find ourselves sometimes in a place where we have to be corrected or go through correction, go through repentance. See, we can either allow intoxication to numb the pain or let sanctification of our souls through Christ bring us peace. And when it comes to intoxication or sanctification, I'm going to choose the latter. Then we move on to our controlled speech. The scripture is so clear about our tongues. The psalmist has a simple prayer that reminds us of our words in Psalm 141, verse 3. It says, The Lord set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. But the example given us in James really allows us to understand what it means to controlling our speech. If you have your Bibles, your Bible apps, I want to ask you to open up to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Here's what it says. 
Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, through the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. In other words, you can only maintain separating your speech from your life for so long. You can only separate them for so long. Just like we've talked about how the fruit that we produce, these fruits of our spirit in our lives are grown from the tree that represents Christ, and what we bear is what is grown. So where love bears love, joy bears joy, peace bears peace, and so forth with the rest of these fruits. We will see that a grapevine cannot produce figs. And again, we often excuse this by saying, I just had a slip of the tongue. I just had a slip of the tongue. But here's the thing. A slip of the tongue is a glimpse into the heart. A slip of the tongue is a glimpse into the heart. You don't just say something that isn't there. That doesn't just come out. Because a slip of the tongue is just an excuse for when I'm lacking self-control and what's inside becomes external. So if your heart is holding on to bitterness, it's going to pump out bitterness. And bitterness will come through the tongue. If your heart is holding on to love, it's going to pump the love of God through you. And it will come out through your tongue. It will be pumped through your life. Because a slip of the tongue is a glimpse into the heart. And later on, we see self-control in its response to persecution. Matthew 5, 39 through 40 says, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. But on the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. What this is saying is if, we are finding ourselves in a situation where somebody comes and slaps you. 
I hope you're not in that situation, by the way. Or when somebody comes to sue you and they're found to be in the right and you're found to be in the wrong. Scripture is saying that we are not to retaliate against each other, but when we're found to be in the wrong, we must, it's far better for us to produce peace and go the extra mile to produce peace and keep the peace. These things are hard. They're not easy. Is anybody's instinct, if you got slapped on the face, to say, hey, hey, here's the other side? And not like in a, a teasing, arrogant way, like, yeah, here, do it one more time, see what happens. But just in a general, just, you know what? I'm not going to fight you. Or you find yourself in a losing battle. You find yourself being accused, and it's determined that you are in the wrong. That I say, how do I produce peace in this situation? See, when we see the scripture, it talks about they want to take away your shirt, let them have your coat as well. What's easier, producing a quarreling situation or going and buying another coat? As Christians, we are called to be keepers of the peace. We exemplify and resemble and are made in the character of a God who's asking us to produce a fruit of peace. So we have to have the self-control to not retaliate against another. So as we continue, I really want to share some incredible examples of Scripture of what it means to practice self-control. In Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 through 12, we find Joseph. And if you're a Bible reader, you're going to be familiar probably with Joseph's story where he found himself, his, he was sold, beaten, sold into slavery. And then he worked his way through the ranks miraculously. And he found himself in a place in direct communication with all of leadership, Pharaoh and his family. And picking up in 39.7, it says, After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. She's a very direct person, by the way. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, Sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. Now you may be familiar with kind of how that story plays out, but we see the self-control that Joseph had. He had a moment to do something different, but he chose to practice self-control. And then later on, we see David in 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 7. And it says, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. I'm just imagining what the rocks of the wild goats looks like. That'd be a good film. But when Saul came to the sheep 
pens along the road. A cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you, so you can do to him whatever you desire. I'm going to pause right there. If I were David, I would have looked at whoever said that to me like he was nuts because why would God hand me in a moment that a man is relieving himself? So this is the moment. It's a pretty stinky situation. Yeah, that'll sit in. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had to cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, as the Lord is my witness... I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. See, David knew that he was promised the kinghood. He was promised to take over a nation. And in one moment, David could have forced that moment. But instead, he knew this is not God's anointing time. It was Saul's relieving time. But he knew this was not the appropriate time, that God had to be the one that put him on the throne. So David practiced self-control to not rush even the things that he knew was from God. Because God has promises for each and every one of us in this room, and we have to practice the self-control to not rush them. To not force them. But say, God, I'm going to be faithful every day in what you've given me. I'm going to be faithful every day in what you are asking me. And then, when you will this, I will see it done in my life. We see in Job, chapter 31, verse 1, and if you've ever read the book of Job, you know this man's life was just, he faced a lot of challenges. And it says at the beginning of chapter 31 that I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? See, not even just acting, but looking. Our thoughts can bring us into a place of temptation where we must choose to practice self-control. Later on, we see Jesus. We look in Isaiah 53, verse 7. And this is scripture about the servant, and he understood that this is the New Testament prophecy that's concerning Jesus. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And we see this then. In Matthew 27, verses 27 through 30, it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. And, and we literally see throughout Scripture during this time that the men were saying, if you're really a son of God, why don't you stop this? But Jesus knew what he had to do. Jesus knew that retaliating was not going to redeem the world, was not going to allow him to be the lamb that was slain for my sins. 
of all the practices of self-control, I think that's the strongest. Because of all the examples in Scripture, Jesus is truly the one that could have done anything. And instead, he chose to do nothing. And we see Paul revisiting the Scripture from 1 Corinthians Verses 9, or chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It says, don't you know what the rumors in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. But we, an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating in the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, when we don't practice self-control, we run the risk of missing out on all the fruits of the Spirit and open ourselves up to the curses of this world instead of the blessings from God. And we see this too in Scripture. See, God is asking us to practice self-control in all of these areas. Because just imagine what love looks like when we don't practice self-control. What does joy look like when we don't practice self-control? What does peace look like when we don't practice self-control? Patience. And the rest of these fruits of the Spirit. Imagine what these fruits look like when we don't practice self-control. And there's a danger when we lose self-control. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 10. As some script or as some music comes up on the back. It says, This is what the Lord says concerning these people. Truly they love to wander. They never rest their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. For now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. See, when we don't practice self-control, we are not walking in a way that honors God. Notice what God does when we choose to reject him by refusing to practice self-control. He doesn't prevent us from sinning and doing the things that we desire. But when we step out of his favor, we're delivered out of his blessing and his anointing. I can choose to practice self-control in these areas of my life, physically and mentally. And when I choose to reject Christ by not practicing self-control, I'm choosing to walk out of his anointing. I'm choosing to walk out of his favor, to walk out of his blessing. And God's going to permit you to continue to do this because you've rejected him. When we lack self-control, it communicates in God, I'm not actually surrendering my life to you. Romans 1, 24 through 31. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to their disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. 
men committed shameless acts with men and received their own persons, the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are fulfilled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. When we lack self-control, we reject God and we walk out of that favor. We walk out of that blessing. And don't get me wrong and don't hear this wrong. Jesus wants you to walk in his favor and wants you to walk in his blessing. But you have to choose to follow him with all of your lives, physically and mentally. Colossians 2, 23 says, Although these have a reputation for wisdom by self or by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. See, even thousands of years ago, there were justifications being made by many to ignore the teachings of God and invalidate his truth. Every day as a follower of Christ, we have to choose to recognize what scripture says and not what the world says about his scripture. See, the gospel cannot be replaced with a progressive gospel that permits sin to be in our lives as followers of Christ. See, false teaching was leading to the throwing off of restraints in the name of the gospel then and is still happening today. God sees what you're doing when nobody else is around. God knows your thoughts. We have to choose as Christians, as followers of Christ, to make sure we are practicing self-control every day. 2 Peter 2, verse 12 through 14 and then we're going to jump to 18 and 19, says, But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighted in the deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that will never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. We skip down to verse 18 and it says, For by uttering unboastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery. People who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. Jude 4, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. See, when we permit sin into our lives, when I permit an excuse for self-control, there's a repercussion in our faith. There's a repercussion for what we do. Do you ever realize sometimes that when I sin, I just keep sinning? It's a chain reaction. I just, I can't stop. What happens when you flip that script? When you start to practice self-control in one area, you begin to see self-control grow. Because why? The fruit we produce continues to produce more of it. 
just like an apple tree bears apples. The love of God in you will bear a love of God through you. Just like the self-control that God has, the self-control that God is calling you to live will bear self-control within you. And this is where Proverbs 27, 17 comes in. You've heard me say this if you've been a member of Rocky Grace. You've heard me come back to the scripture time and time again because it is this important. That iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. And here's the thing. If you ever really thought about this scripture, have you ever tried to sharpen something iron? See, iron is a soft metal. It's considered a soft metal. Today, when you're using something to sharpen iron, you don't use iron. You use something harder than iron. And I don't think this is a mistake of the scripture, but there's very much an intent in choosing iron for this. Because when iron sharpens iron, both irons change. It is impossible to sharpen iron with another piece of iron without both changing because they are both soft metals. One is not harder than the other. We've inadvertently shifted the scripture as followers of Christ to sometimes mean that I'm just going to lay down the hammer on another Christian and call it iron sharpening iron so I can help you get to where you need to be. But the truth is that when we as Christians see that we need to help each other in acting out self-control, we are also permitting God to work inside of me, to sharpen me, as well. Church, if we need each other, if we are truly going to grow in our self-control, imagine if all I do is read these scriptures each week, spend time in prayer and preparation for this message, seeking God, that each person would walk out sharper, but didn't allow myself to grow sharper in the process. Just imagine if I came up here and preached and I spent hours in preparation, hours in reading scripture for each message and didn't let the words of God transform myself too. Church, that is what it's like when we as Christians see the needs of others and say, I want to help you, but let's help each other. Let's sharpen each other up. But this means that we need to not be afraid to be that first person to speak out saying, I see you struggling in this area. Or on the flip side, going to somebody and say, I'm struggling in this area of self-control. Would you help me? There is no shame in that. There's joy and there is celebration in seeking God first. See, parents, if you're in the room, you are the iron that God provided to sharpen your children. Don't lose and waste your time ignoring these areas that your children need to grow in. Sharpen the iron that God gave you, but also let God sharpen you in that process. Spouses, you made a vow to be the iron to each other, to sharpen each other. Friends, there are people in your lives who you see every day who need that sharpening. If, whether you're dating or engaged, if you are not sharpening each other now, do not think that you will be sharpening each other later after you say, I do. And make sure you're sharpening each other in all of these relationships in a way that allows you to grow. And if you're in a relationship, make sure that you're allowing yourself to grow in a way that you are equally yoked. No room for what we talked about earlier because you are together to sharpen each other and not dull each other out. Because when we learn to behave as iron sharpening iron, we set ourselves up to grow in our self-control. 
so that we are not, like as Paul described, and being hypocrites, disqualifying ourselves and saying, let's continue to grow. See, we must want to not just see ourselves, but all followers of Jesus be able to walk in self-control. We must sharpen the irons of each other, growing in our relationship with God so that we are producing the fruits of the Spirit. That we could practice self-control. That we can give to God the areas of our lives that we struggle in. The areas where I'm not doing a good job of practicing self-control in. Saying, God, I lay this before you. I lay this down at the altar before you. I know what your word says. I know what you're speaking to me about. I know that thing that I keep coming back to. But instead, God, I need to give this to you today. I need to find that other person who will sharpen me so we can sharpen each other so I can walk in your holiness, to walk in your ways. We have to lay it down before him. Church, we have to learn what it means to bear the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are not above the law. We must live them out as followers of Christ. So here's how we're going to close today. I know we ran a little bit over, but I really believe that this message was so critical today as we closed out this series. That's why we gave this fruit its own week. Because church, we have to make sure we understand the significance of practicing self-control in all areas of our lives. So today I want to close with a prayer of blessing over each person in this room. So if you would join me in just standing. I'm going to pray over each of you from here. And I'm going to pray that whether you're here for this your first time, you've been here through all the weeks as we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, that God begins to produce through you these fruits. And the fruits that are maybe growing rotten, become aware of them, to grow in them, to bring them to health, that these fruits in our lives reflect Him. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for each person who is joining us today in person, who is joining us online, that is hearing this message now or later, that we can receive all that you have in store for us today, that as we hear about the self-control that you are asking us, that you're compelling us to live out, that if we are struggling in this room, that you allow each of us to walk out of this room claiming the self-control that you have given us. That we could choose to honor you each day with our bodies, our mind, our souls, the physical and the mental, the spiritual. Jesus, that we submit wholly to you to bear and produce these fruits of the Spirit that your Holy Spirit compels us to grow. God, I pray a prayer of blessing over each person in this room that they may produce love, that they may produce joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. That these are not just things that we do on the outside, but they are examples of who you have transformed us to be on the inside. So that we may put you first in everything we say and everything we do. That we could bring your name glory and honor. God, help us to produce an orchard of these fruits. That people in our community, that people in our lives will continue to experience you through the fruits of the spirit that we produce to point them to no one other than you. Watch over us until we come back next week to pray, worship, and celebrate as a body. In your name we pray, all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, Rock of Grace, I've thoroughly enjoyed this series with you guys and diving into really what it means to apply these fruits to our lives. Uh, if I have not had the honor of meeting you yet, I would love to just connect and say hi. Uh, otherwise, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week uh, and make good choices as we practice the fruits of the Spirit. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. If this message impacted you or you would like to get in contact with us, you can visit us at www.rockofgrace.org. Also, be sure to share this message with a friend or subscribe so you never miss a message. God bless.